0: The following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Sean Farrell. I'm the college pastor here and also serve as one of the elders. And our teaching pastor, Chris Mueller, is away this weekend. He's in Maui with Gene, right, tough, it's a tough life, yeah, having a good time, and I get the opportunity to open God's word with you. Last weekend, I was told that the shower drain in my daughter's bathroom was clogged. Being somewhat of a handyman, I decided to take this small project on by myself. And over the years, I will admit to you that I've grown in my abilities to handle projects around the house, some easy, some difficult. Sometimes they end well, and sometimes they don't. So I entered the bathroom to survey the situation, turned the shower on, and my diagnostic skills were right there, clearly clogged. Awesome. Figuring this would be a quick and easy project, I chose not to change into my work clothes, but to attack the problem head on. I was armed with my trusty snake, which if you know what a snake is, it's just a tightly coiled metal rope that's designed to push through the drain, down into the trap, which is this part down here where the clog typically resides, and to capture whatever's in there and then pull it out. In the snake goes, as I bring the snake back, out pops mazel There is this just growth of stuff, hair, goop. Glummy, disgusting, smelly stuff, and I think, awesome, I got it done. I turn the water on, it's still clogged. The snake goes back into its hole, deeper I push, get it all the way in there, and this time as I try to retract it, it won't come back. So I start pulling harder, and harder, and harder, and finally it releases all at once, spraying me and covering me with whatever was attached on the end, which was the rest of the clog, all over my nice clothes that I was wearing. Fortunately, I had these protective lenses on, so it didn't, it was splattered all over the place. It was awesome. In that moment, I thought about the bumper sticker, maybe you've seen it, no bad days. Really? No bad days, covered with filth from head to toe, I wondered about that bumper sticker, and I want to confess to you right now that I'm tempted the next time I see a car with that bumper sticker to run them off the road and yell out the window, how about now? How about now? Yeah, really? No bad days? The truth is we've all had bad days. We've all experienced pain and hardship in our lives. Do you like the background music? Did you just catch that too? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Have you ever been dumped or laid off, cut from the team? How about fever, body aches, and a lingering cough? Anybody? (laughs) I mean, we don't have to go far to see that our world is full of tension, turmoil, and pain. It's evident in nature. We just saw a volcano erupt in Tonga. Earthquakes hit in Haiti, tsunamis in Indonesia. We see wars between nations, the war in Afghanistan, communist control of North Korea, genocide and ethnic cleansing in Africa. We see it in the oppression of the weak and the poor, abortion, poverty, child abuse, sex trafficking. But all of that is out there, right? Like We see all that out there in our world. But how about we get a little closer to home, persistent health issues, car accident, loss of a loved one, scary diagnosis, marital conflict, wayward child. And isn't it true that as you get older, your body begins to break down? When does that start? We decided in the first hour, it decides right around the age of 40. Because today is Pat Levis's 40th birthday, so you can go and tell him happy birthday. I think he, see he here, I think he stepped outside. There you go, happy birthday, Pat. But the trials and difficulties of life are nothing new. Job said in Job 5.7, for man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. And Jesus said in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation. One man said, life is hard, then you die. Then they throw dirt in your face. Then the worms eat you. Be grateful it happens in that order. But have you ever stopped to ask, why? Why is our world so messed up? Where did all this evil come from? H.G. Wells, the author of The War of the Worlds, once said, faced with the world's evil, we must conclude that a good God either has the power but does not care or cares but does not have the power to stop it. We could have the perspective of the skeptic who went to heaven and he said, you know what's funny about the Holocaust? And God answered, no. And the man said, ah, you had to be there. Insinuating that God is absent in our world of suffering... Well, this morning, we're going to answer some very difficult questions. If there really is a God, then why is there so much suffering in this world? Why does God allow evil to exist? And I want to take you to a passage of Scripture that deals with the origins of sin, of evil, and of suffering. Said a different way, we could say that every ounce of pain Every degree of suffering, every trial and tribulation, all disease, sickness, and even death itself came from one specific event. All evil and the subsequent suffering that comes as a result are the product of direct disobedience and rebellion against the sovereign God of the universe. The singular event that I'm referring to is called the fall. And it's described in Genesis 3, it is the day everything went wrong. If you would, open your Bibles to Genesis 3, and we're going to read this passage together and seek to answer these questions. We've got a lot of work, we've got a big chapter to work through, but I want to start by reading it for you. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed... When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, "'The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate.' Then the Lord God said to the woman, "'What is this you have done?' And the woman said, "'The serpent deceived me, and I ate.' The Lord God said to the serpent, "'Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life.' And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them, Now, in an effort to organize our thoughts and keep us moving through this and ultimately answer our question of why God allows evil and suffering in our world, I'd like to just give you six words, more just to keep us moving the flow. These words are deception, disobedience, curse, promise, faith, and mercy. Let's look at the first one. It's the word deception. Deception. Look back at verse one. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now, it doesn't take too much digging for us to find out who the serpent really is. He's clearly described in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. It says there, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. There we go. He deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. This describes the enemy of God who, having failed to take heaven is determined to establish his hold on earth through its first inhabitants. And here he is seeking to deceive and destroy. Do you see that word crafty in your Bibles, verse 1? It does not refer to somebody who loves Pinterest. <laughs> or it goes to Michael's for decorative wall hats, okay? It means shrewd. Or cunning. First Peter 5.8 says our adversary prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now a couple notes. Satan is not everywhere. He does not know everything. He is not all powerful. He cannot read your thoughts. He does not know the future. Like us, he is a created being. But he is very smart. He is very crafty. And he has been deceiving people since the beginning. And here he comes to Eve and asks her in verse 1, look down there. Has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Notice that Satan, in an effort to manipulate, has very subtly changed what God said. He added one word. Do you see it? It's the word any. God said in chapter 2 they could eat freely of any tree in the garden. Except one. He says they can't eat from it. Anyway, notice that the tempter begins with suggestion rather than direct confrontation. It's an outright contradiction of what God said. It is a question, though, the first question we find in our Bibles, and it is a question of God. Look at Eve's response in verse 2. From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or we, you will die. Is that what God said? No. She too added something to God's original command. One word. What did she add? Or, if, or I'm sorry, it's a phrase. You shall not touch it. God never said that. She's adding. John Calvin says, because... He now sees a breach open before him. Satan breaks through in a direct assault. And so he comes now from manipulation to direct challenge. And he challenges her statement in verse 4 saying, You surely will not die. He started by questioning God. Now he calls God an outright liar. He's setting his word against the word of God. And the first thing he denies is the doctrine of judgment. You're not going to die. There's no judgment or consequences for your actions. He's sowing the seed of distrust in the heart of Eve. Trust your feelings, trust your emotions, trust your heart. But don't trust God. We know that God is not a liar, Satan is. Jesus said in John 8, that Satan was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan expands in verse 5. He's walking down a pathway. For God knows in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Look at that phrase, you will be like God. In commenting on this, one author said, I have no doubt that Satan is promising divinity. You will be as God. You will be like God. You will be God. I don't think much has changed in our day. He still comes offering freedom and autonomy, he still peddles the lie that God is holding you back, that he isn't giving you his best. He dangles the forbidden fruit, tempting and enticing and seeking to convince us that God's way is boring and restrictive. And he knows what sin you struggle with. The Puritans called it the darling sin. We call it our besetting sin. We're all prone and wired to sin and struggle with particular things in our life. Pride for some, lust for others, anger and worry, and the list goes on. And as an excellent student of the heart of man... Satan presses those temptations against us. Look at verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. I want you to notice these three phrases. It was good for food. Look at the next one. It was a delight to the eyes. And the third one, it was desirable to make one wise. This is a good description of how temptation works. It appeals to the senses It appeals to the intellect. It appeals to the desire. It promises to satisfy, showing only the good while hiding the consequence. And like a moth led to the flame, she was enamored, infatuated, and possessed by its charm. That leads to our second word. It's the word disobedience disobedience. So verse 6, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. This is it. This is the moment that sin entered and polluted the human race. The temptation may have come from the devil, but the devil cannot sin for you. The choice was theirs. The fall was a direct result of disobedience. Romans 5:15 Paul calls it the transgression. Derek Kidner, a commentator, said so simple the act, so hard its undoing. There is no road back. Now, why did Eve disobey? 1st Timothy 2:14 tells us the woman being deceived fell into transgression. She legitimately believed that eating the fruit would bring a good result to her and her husband. Why did Adam disobey? Was he also deceived? No. Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. One writer said, She yielded to the the temptations of her senses and the deceits of Satan. He to marital love. It may have taken a profoundly powerful being to seduce Eve, but it took only a suggestion from his wife to bring Adam into rebellion against God. By the way, what was Adam doing when Eve sinned? Was he off somewhere else? I don't think so. Look at verse 6. He was with her. She just handed the fruit to him, like he was standing right there. What was he doing when Satan came to tempt her? When he called God a liar... What was he doing when his wife was being deceived? In the closing verses of chapter 2, we see their wedding ceremony. In that ceremony, if it was anything like what we do today, he promised to lead her, to protect her, and to care for her. And yet there he stood saying nothing, doing nothing. He let her eat the fruit, and then he followed suit. In verse 7 it says, and by the way, is this not the case with men? Too many churches are filled with strong women and weak men. Too many homes are filled with strong women and weak men. We are passive, we let things happen, we get lazy. Gentlemen, may that not be said of us, to stand by while things are happening in our life and our families. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Innocence vanished. Naivety was gone. The text says, look down there, verse 7, right in the middle, it says, they knew. This is the knowledge of good and evil. And their conscience has now been activated. And for the first time, that God-given alarm is ringing. Verse 7, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They sought to fix the problem by their own efforts to cover their sin, as it were. Is this not the same response of every sinner even today? Verse 8, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This could be translated at the time of the evening breeze. I like that. And we get the idea that God came regularly to walk and to talk with Adam and Eve. But now instead of greeting him, they are hiding from him in abject fear. I think we understand this to some point, don't we? Let me give you an example. Somebody walks up to you and goes, hey, how's it going? Oh, everything's great. Yeah, good. How's your walk with the Lord? Good? Strong? To quite strong? What are you struggling with right now? Oh, well, uh, um, you know, I'm, I've just really been working through some stuff. Oh, yeah, like what? Well, I've really been struggling with lust. You know, last... But la- Last week was a bad week. I'm doing much better now. That's our typical answer. What are we doing? We're hiding. We're deflecting. We're in the shadows, not wanting to expose and reveal our sin. We're taking fig leaves and we're trying to cover ourselves with them. We evade because we don't want to be exposed. Verse nine, then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, "Where are you?" Years ago, I bought a house in Indiana as an investment property. You didn't know that I was a real estate mogul, did you? Single family home that was advertised to quickly create positive cash flow. It's a rental property. Truth be told, it was a terrible investment. I bought the house on auction for $11,000. How about that? Okay. I had the cash on hand. I spent it. But then it needed rehab. So I took what little money I had left and saved and saved and saved and and rehabbed it so it would be ready to rent out. Now I'm completely out of money. Not long after, the property manager calls me before anybody's moved in and says, Hey, um, the property's on a well. doesn't get its water from the city. And there's a pump that drives the well, right? Lightning struck your pump. And it's going to be $5,000. I'm like, do the math. That's half of what the house is worth, right? So I'm like, oh, wow. I don't have any money. Well, you can't rent it out without water. Hey, here's what we're going to do, they said. We're going to cover up the hole we dug to reveal this. We're going to leave it for a little bit. We're going to let your home insurance kick in, which at that point it had not. And then we're going to dig it back up. And we'll make a claim on your insurance Right as rain, you're good to go I go Oh cool That's great Click (laughs) But then in the cool of the day (laughs) God came calling to me Sean Where are you? This is a lie. It doesn't matter that no one else knows, I know. And I was exposed. And I was guilty. And I'm thankful to say I called back and told them, I'll figure it out. I can't do what you suggested. And there was just this awkward pause on the other phone because they're like, um what? What oh, okay. Has God called to you? Alone in your bedroom at night? Going somewhere where you shouldn't go? With someone you shouldn't be with? Doing something you shouldn't be doing? And you hear the voice of God? I want you to notice in this text that God doesn't wait for the sinner to come to him. He initiates he is the seeker. In Luke 19, 10, it says, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so here is God, merciful and gracious. He makes his approach. And Adam responds in verse 10, look there. I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Why does God ask these questions? Is it to gain information? Hardly. This is his attempt to bring Adam and Eve to the point of personal confession. Proverbs 28:13 says, "He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion." But Adam deflects. Adam evades verse 12 the man said the woman whom you gave to be with me she gave me from the tree and I ate he immediately shifts the blame accusing the only other person on the planet (laughs) his wife and I just want to ask you how do you think that went after the scene closes and they're talking amongst themselves and God has left she's going seriously seriously Seriously? But if you look closer at this text, who is Adam actually blaming? He's blaming God. Wow. He does not re- defer. He does not repent. He doesn't back down. Instead, Adam is digging his heels in and contending with God, believing In that moment, himself to be on equal footing, he goes toe-to-toe with the Almighty and he levels the accusation against God himself. But James 1.14 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. So God turns to the woman in verse 13, what is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Eve, too, shifts the blame. Her answer the devil made me do it. Adam blamed God, Eve blamed Satan. Who do you blame for your sin? You blame your spouse, you blame your kids, you blame your parents, you blame your employer or your coach or your teachers James says in 115 James 115 but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust And although it's unspoken the verdict is clear Adam and Eve are guilty They have disobeyed God And this takes us to our third word. We've seen deception, we've seen disobedience. Our third word is the word judgment. In verse 14, God pronounces judgment, and in the text, it's more or less divided into four groups. First, he judges the serpent. Look at 14. Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Now, just for a moment, did snakes have wings or legs? Maybe. Were they the most beautiful creature in God's creation? Some commentators think so. We don't know. And now that I have your attention all looking up, like what's he gonna tell us? Here's the here's the point. It doesn't matter. Okay? <laughs> what we do know is that this is a curse unique to this physical animal. Judgment is coming to the real culprit in verse 15, but we'll come back to that in a moment. Let's move on to the woman, verse 16. Her judgment, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, in pain you will bring forth children. I've heard that it hurts less to be shot with a bullet than it does to give birth. Or guys, they say, take your bottom lip and pull it up over your head and you get some idea of what childbirth is like. In Genesis 1, God blessed our first parents saying, be fruitful and multiply, But now, blessing is minimalized and pain is maximized. Verse 16 continues, look down there, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. As we already talked about, the man abdicated his role, allowing her to come out from under his leadership. He did not stop her when she ate the fruit. He partook of it himself, then he blamed her for it. And in the conflict that ensues, we would just call it today the battle of the sexes. This is where it has its origin. One author wrote, to love and cherish becomes to desire and dominate. Her desire that is to take control, excuse me, her desire to take control is met with his imperfect effort to force her submission. And this struggle for mastery is the root of all marital conflict, and it has played out in every single marriage ever since. One commentator, in summarizing this verse, said, in the moments of life's greatest blessing, marriage and childbearing, or in children, the woman would sense most clearly the painful consequences of her rebellion against God. He moves on thirdly to the earth, verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. The entire physical universe was cursed at this point. Competition entered. Resources were limited. I think snow started falling like in Green Bay last night. It was 14 degrees. I'm sorry, Darnese. (laughs) Anyway, this is the start of earthquakes of floods, of hurricanes, tsunamis, this is cancer, the flu, rabies, polio, you name it, all of that had its root right here when God cursed the earth. Romans 8.22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Martin Luther said, the world is deteriorating from day to day, and that is a true statement. We, We see finally here the judgment on the man. Judgment on the man. Verse 17, after pronouncing judgment on the woman, God turns to the man, judging him last because he sinned last. He says there in toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it will produce for you or grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. Stop right there. I want to ask you a question. I want you to answer in your inner voice only. Okay, no out loud. Is work a curse? Think about it. I want everybody in the room to have an answer. Is work a curse? (laughs) That was not your inside voice. If you answered yes, consider that work was given to man in Genesis 2 before the fall. It was there in the perfection of Eden, and it will be there in the perfection of heaven. Work is not a curse. The curse is that the earth you are trying to subdue pushes back. There are no free lunches. Get-rich-quick schemes don't work. And that amazing opportunity, that once-in-a-lifer that seems too good to be true, it is. Not even probably. It is. Life is not easy. Work is not easy. Instead, man will toil and labor and sweat day after day after day. But that's not the end. Look at 19. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Man is now mortal. There is an expiration date stamped onto every person at this point. Now let me dial this in just a little bit. Your whole life you will work. You will work long and you will work hard. You love your wife. You love your kids. You save for retirement. You spoil your grandkids. But one day you will die. And the moral of the story is that all of your efforts... All of your work, all of your good deeds are not enough to save you. You cannot get to heaven through your work. The sum total of your life is enough excuse me, is not enough to make you right with God. It is only enough to send you back to the dirt from which you came. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 5.16, this also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. The Apostle Paul in Romans 5.12 said, therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You and I and every other son and daughter of Adam are under the same judgment, And this sin nature has been passed down to us. We too have disobeyed and rebelled against the holy God. And our sin has alienated us from him. And we stand condemned to judgment just like they did. We aren't evolving. We aren't getting better. We are living on a cursed earth. And our sin is driving us farther and farther away from Eden. We try to hide from him like our first parents did, but to no avail. We're heading toward physical death and ultimately toward the judgment of God. Augustine said, if it be asked what death God threatened man with here, whether physical or spiritual or that second death, we answer, it was all. And so the words of Hebrews 10.31 ring clear. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Adam and Eve and every other sinner find themselves in serious trouble. And we pause to ask the question, maybe it's rolling around in your mind from the beginning. If God's all powerful and if he's good, why doesn't he just stomp the devil out and get rid of sin immediately? Because at this point, all of humanity is destined for eternal hell, why would a loving God allow this to happen? And and if we take it down to our world, why would a loving God allow all that we're going through in all of our individual lives, all the suffering and pain, why would he let that be? Well, with that question, in our minds, we move on to our fourth word. It's the word promise. And tucked into verse 15 is a promise that is frankly unbelievable. I want you to look there. You should underline this in your Bible and I'll explain why in a minute. I will put enmity between you speaking to the devil and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now this is a promise, it's a prophecy, it's a promise that a descendant of Eve would destroy the serpent. But who is this seed? Look at 4.1 at some point. Eve thought it was Cain until he killed Abel. Throughout the Old Testament, it's foreshadowed that one of her descendants, someone that came from the line of the woman, there were shadows and whispers of this second Adam. And Galatians 4.4 tells us, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son. Born in Bethlehem, He walked the dusty roads of Palestine, offering sight to the blind and freedom to the captives. He banished disease, raised the dead, and exercised authority over the created order. His name is Jesus Christ. And throughout his life, Satan and his demonic host threw everything they could at him. He worked every conceivable angle. But he finally got his big break When he convinced one of Jesus' closest friends to betray him, sold for 30 pieces of silver and a Judas kiss, Christ is placed on trial. The rest of his men fled, fearful for their own lives. He was left alone. They tortured him, spit on him, plucked out his beard, and beat a crown of thorns into his head. Then they took him to the outskirts of town, and they laid him on a wooden cross. Can you imagine the demons looking on with devilish delight as they pounded the nails into his hands and feet? As that cross was hoisted up, the prime objective for which Satan had worked throughout the ages had been achieved. He had killed the Son of God. He won. He won. He must have reveled in that moment, soaking in every aspect of his victory. But after all of that, Genesis 3.15 tells us he had only bruised his heel. Three days later, Jesus would rise from the dead as the victor And he would take his seat, the very seat that Satan so desperately desired, at the right hand of the Father. And looking down from his throne, it's almost as if Jesus says to the devil, is that all you got? And only then did the full weight of what happened on the cross come down on him. Satan realized that after all this time, in all his hate-filled efforts, he had only succeeded in carrying out the purposes of an all-wise God. Jonathan Edwards said, Satan is the greatest blockhead of all time. <laughs> now, there's another promise in Genesis 3.15. Look back at your Bibles. It says there, and he shall bruise you on the head. Translation, Jesus will crush the devil's head. I think it was 10 years ago, I was out front mowing my lawn, told you I'm kind of handy like that, it's not true, it's not true, if you ever come to my house, I get more angry at inanimate objects, uh, and I sin more in those projects, I should just hire out, but I keep trying to do it, but I'm mowing my lawn, garage door's open, and I go back to go into my house through the garage, and there's a snake in my garage, and I try to, you know, what do you, like, I don't know, I don't know what to do. And the snake sees me, and it takes off deeper into my garage, into the corner, okay? And I'm trying to get to it, and all of a sudden, I'm thinking, oh, good, I got it trapped in the corner. It goes up into the drywall and disappears. I'm not kidding. And I'm standing there, huh, I get out uh, my caulking gun and a whole tube, of, tube that's laying there, and I just, I fill up this huge, just gooping down in this one area in the corner, I don't know what to do. Do I tell Tracy? Because if I tell her there's a snake in our wall, what is she going to say? We're moving right now. Like, we're done. We're done. The next weekend, I was back in the garage, and there it was, coiled up right in the middle of the slab. This time I was ready. I grabbed my shovel, I turned it on its side, and in one clean stroke, with all the might I had, I came down on top of it, severing its head from its body. (laughs) That severed head was writhing on the ground until I took the shovel, I set it on top of the head, and I stood on top of it. (laughs) And I crushed its head. Now, don't applaud for me like First Hour did. (laughs) But see the illustration for what this is. This is the picture of Christ's victory over Satan. Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And Revelation 20 describes his final end It says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Genesis 3.15 is is called the Proto-Evangelium. That's Latin. In English, the first gospel. It is the first mention of Christ, and it comes on page three of your Bible. 1 Corinthians 15.21, For since by a man... Adam came death. By a man Jesus also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. No sooner had Adam and Eve fallen that God promises he would send a redeemer. The hymn writer said marvelous grace of our loving lord Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the lamb was spilt. What a God. But the story isn't done yet. Let's look at our fifth word. It's the word faith. Faith. Look at verse 20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. I don't know about you, but this seems a little out of place to me. Okay, good. We're going back to the naming thing, right? Now, that's good. Okay, I suppose. Now, I've been referring to her as Eve throughout the sermon, but up till now in the text, she doesn't have a name. In 127, she's called female. In 218, she's called a suitable helper for Adam. In 38, she's called his wife. But we don't find the name Eve until right here. Adam names her Eve which means life or life giver, and her title there in verse 20 is the mother of all the living. But she's not a mother yet. Huh. Having heard the promise of a coming redeemer, Adam chose to believe the word of God. Earlier in the chapter, he has doubted and rejected in unbelief. Now in faith, he names his wife the mother of all the living, trusting in the promise of God that her seed would lead to their salvation. This is his repentance. This is his saying, I'm not listening to that voice anymore. I trust and listen to your promise. And so he names her Eve. Look at 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Now, where did these garments come from? Okay, there, there wasn't a Kohl's, right, or, or some other shop around. Garments of skin come from animals. God sacrificed an innocent animal and then took its sin and covered their nakedness. It's, first of all, a clear illustration of the consequence of sin. Romans 6.23, the wages or the payment of sin is death. And this animal's death, like every other animal that was sacrificed in the Old Testament, was a picture of atonement, a picture of the payment for sin. It's a life for a life. But Hebrews 10 tells us the blood of an animal can never take away sin. It's foreshadowing. It's a picture of a lamb, of a, a perfect lamb, of a perfect man that would die on behalf of his people, paying the penalty of their sin. In John 1:29, when Jesus steps on the scene, it says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And all who come to him in faith, trusting in his finished work on the cross, will fi- find salvation. They will be covered by him, by his sacrifice and his righteousness. And so we've seen deception, disobedience, judgment, promise, faith, And there's one more word. It's the word mercy. Mercy. Look at 22. It says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, reference to the Trinity, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. To guard the way to the tree of life. To guard the way to the tree of life. Because if you're Adam, and you've just witnessed death for the first time, as God killed this animal, and you watch it, be eviscerated and skinned right in front of you, and now you know what death is, and now you know that you are going to die, what is your next move? I'm going to get to the tree of life. Because I know that if I can get a bite of that fruit, I will live forever and I won't have to go through that. But if Adam gained immortality... He would be in an unredeemed state. Unable to die means he's unable to be saved. Who does that remind you of? Satan and his minions. Their fate is sealed. Their judgment is sure. They can never be redeemed. They are eternally locked in their sin. Note this. When God promised and sent a redeemer, he sent a man. Why? Why? To stand in the place of men, to die in the place of men, to atone for the sins of men, not of demons. They are damned, and so they hate God, and they work ceaselessly to undermine his plan and take with them as many as they can on their way to hell. But it's not so for you, and it's not so for me. God sent a savior For mankind, he sent his own son for you and for me. He offers hope. He does not leave us in our sin, but gives us an opportunity through Christ to be redeemed, to be forgiven. And so in 24, God drives them out of the garden and commissions his angel, arming them with a flaming sword, which is pretty cool. Man would never again enter Eden. No matter how much they wanted to, no matter how hard they tried, they could never get back. Paradise was lost. And this is a physical reminder of the distance between a sinful man and a holy God. Man would never again enter into the presence of God. That is, until Christ came and tore the veil in the temple in two, thus giving a sinful man access to holy God because of the righteous sacrifice of Jesus Christ bring us together. So why label this mercy? What's the mercy here? It is mercy that God prevented the man from eating the fruit thus sealing his fate in death. It is in this way that death itself, believe it or not, is a mercy. For having died we can be resurrected into newness of life through the work of Jesus Christ. You get it? What a story. Deception, disobedience, curse, promise, faith, mercy. Now let me finish where we began. I asked earlier at the beginning of the message, if there really is a God, then why is there so much suffering in the world? Why does he allow evil to exist? Here's your answer, tune in. He did it all, to show off and to magnify his own glory. Does that satisfy you? Let me explain deeper. If you don't believe that, answer this question. Was the cross of Jesus Christ plan B? Do you think that when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, God's walking through the garden, cool of the day, wait a second, I've lost them. I've mis- misplaced my people. Oh no, Adam. You've ruined everything. What did you do? And now there's a divine scramble. The Trinity's calling a board meeting. We're getting together figuring out we gotta have some good PR for this. We gotta come out of this looking good. What are we gonna do? Is that what happened? Hardly. Listen to Acts 2:22. Peter's preaching. And he says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, listen to this phrase, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, whoa, you nailed to a cross. How about First Peter 1 Peter 1.18. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers. But with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. Now look at verse 20. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. What's the point? God Allowed evil and sin. I can't explain to you how it all fits together. But what I can tell you is that it's all part of his plan so that he could show off his glory through the cross of Christ. Listen carefully. There is no greater demonstration of the glory of God than to see his holiness and his justice and his power and his wrath poured out on his son on the cross. There is no greater demonstration of the glory of God or of his attributes than to see his grace and his mercy and his love and his forgiveness on the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no event in human or divine history higher than the cross. All of it leads to and points to that event because that is the high point of the glory of God and the greatest demonstration for all to see. And so we see that God takes sinners and at great personal cost redeems them creating a people who for all eternity would worship and glorify him that's the point that's the big story and you and I are caught up right in the middle of it and we struggle in our world and we've got problems with our sickness and our our issues and our struggles and our trials they're real but we need to take a step back and recognize it's all part of the great plan of God to magnify Christ, to bring us to redemption so that one day as a people, we will praise and honor him for all he's done. I've gone long. Let me close with two verses out of the end of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy, To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, we gather around your very throne, as it were, as we come to worship you, acknowledging that we have fallen, every one of us. And that, Lord, you, through Christ, have redeemed us. And so we say thank you. And so we lift up our hearts in praise and adoration. Lord, if there's anyone who doesn't know Christ in this room, would you draw them to yourselves and show yourself mighty to save? There is a way of salvation. There is forgiveness of sin. Lord Jesus, please, help those today who are struggling there. We give you thanks. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks and have a great day.